Over the last seven weeks, I've described ways that we Christians have been harassed in secular America. I've given many specific and actual examples of where not just that we disagree with secularism, but where secularism has expressed open hostility towards us and tried to bully us. We've been kicked off university campuses, canceled from social media, sued by government agencies, ordered to compromise by HR departments, had our books tossed off retail websites, been discriminated against at work, unfairly banned from our worship services, threatened with the loss of our licenses, accreditations, and even our tax-exempt status, had our children propagandized by the media and a growing number of school districts, called all sorts of names, cursed and condemned. All of this hostility simply because of what we believe as Christians. Seeing this growing threat against Christians and the church, several years ago, the North Boulevard elders began discussing how we must strengthen ourselves as a people of God in the face of opposition. They've spent hours literally in prayer and also in conversations. They asked me to preach this series of sermons as an introduction to a long conversation we need to have about how to stand firm in a faithless age. Before I finish the series, which I'll do this morning, I'd like for you to hear once again from your shepherds as they give you a biblical word of encouragement about the importance of standing firm. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. We, the elders of North Boulevard, want to thank you for your positive response to the church-wide conversation we began eight weeks ago designed to encourage this body to stand firm even in faithless times. Many of you are living models of Paul's words. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. We elders believe there is a rising opposition to the Christian faith in America. It may become difficult to be faithful to Jesus in this increasingly faithless world. But we are not worried. If hostility breaks out against us, we will trust the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In his sermons, David has described some of the opposition we face, and he has articulated several principles for standing firm. We want to reinforce these principles, reminding you that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. First, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. Remember that you have already chosen Jesus and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. If the way becomes difficult, don't back down from Jesus. Second, we remind you that the battle we face is not really political or cultural. As Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. For this reason, we encourage you to strengthen your prayer life. Seek out the power of the Holy Spirit and recommit to the scriptures. Third, we urge you to be on your guard against sin and temptation, which are likely to increase. Be alert and of sober mind. 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Fourth, we encourage you to cultivate deeper relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ so we can support one another should things become more difficult. We will stand together as a community of Christ. Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil, insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessings. And last, we encourage you to make disciple-making your mission, knowing that through the gospel, even those that may hate us can come to eternal life. As Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes, but as innocent as doves. Suffering is the way of Christ. Jesus suffered, and we will suffer too. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But it's a, it's a blessing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And so we assure you that we at North Boulevard are going to face the future with confidence, with hope, with joy, and with the conviction that the battle has already been won. As Jesus has said, I have told you these things so that within me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Together we will joyfully follow the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is nothing short of invincible. In the year 410 A.D., Alaric the Goth sacked the city of Rome. It was among the greatest shocks the world has ever seen, a far more cataclysmic than were Pearl Harbor or 9-11. The Eternal City had stood undisturbed for 800 years. Its fall signaled the end of the world as people had known it for centuries. Even people who hated the Roman Empire were shaken by the disaster, aware that the very foundations of the world they had known had now shuddered and collapsed. In response to the catastrophe and the worldwide instability that the city's collapse created, the brilliant theologian and bishop Augustine wrote one of the world's most important books called The City of God. In The City of God, Augustine seeks to offer a Christian interpretation of the fall of Rome he defends the church against accusations that we were responsible for its fall, and he encourages Christians to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. In other words, to stand with the church eternal. Augustine's book offers a high-level view of history, reminding us that really there are only two cities that exist, the city of God, composed of those who are devoted to following Jesus, and the city of the world, composed of those who are in rebellion against God. These two cities have been opposed to one another since the beginning, and they will continue to be at odds until Jesus returns when the city of God will finally win and the city of the world will be punished. Accordingly, to quote Augustine, 
Two cities have been formed by two loves. The earthly city by the love of the self, even to the neglect of God. The heavenly city by the love of God, even willing to neglect oneself. So as we Christians face increasing hostility from the city of this world, we must continually remind ourselves that we were never really citizens of this world anyway. Our citizenship was always in heaven, and it's to heaven's kingdom that we look. We belong to an eternal city, and the trials that we suffer now will soon be redeemed. Sweeping the history of the people of God, the Hebrew writer puts it this way, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Brothers and sisters, we belong to the city of God. And because of this, we're able to face anything, anything with confidence and joy. We've already read the final chapter of history and God wins. We're guaranteed a renewed heaven and earth, a paradise in which once again we walk with God where the sun never sets, the streets are of gold, the gates are of a single pearl, where the wealth of the nations pours in. The tree of life still blooms where no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more death, and no more dying are ever experienced where all things are made new. We are the church of Christ, and so we're invincible. We are the bride of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are the household of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the sheep of God's flock. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. And we are these things even if we fail to be perfect. We are these things because God has declared us these things in his sovereignty. That means we are the church of yesterday. We are the church of today. We are the church of tomorrow. We are the church universal. We are the church eternal. We are the church of Christ. To strengthen our resolve in the face of hardships, we need to look beyond the day-to-day -day struggles that we might face here in an increasingly secular America and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Ancient Rome fell in a disaster. Today, I've done this. Today, you can wander the ruins of ancient Rome. It's haunts. It's vultures. And from there, you can accurately predict the fate of any city of this world that raises its fist against the Lord God. From the ruins of ancient Rome, you can reflect on the fact that only two institutions survived the ancient world, the synagogue and the church. The synagogue because God is not done with the Jews and the church because we are the people of God eternal. And you can be sure that any empire that lifts its fist against the people of God today is going to look like Rome soon. The church is never going to fall. We've been kicking down the gates of hell since Jesus came. And we're going to be storming the gates of hell when Jesus returns. 
And so to be invincible, I'll remind you very quickly of a few things. First, I want you to remember that you are in God's story. We've all played that little paper game called Connect the Dots. It's a good illustration for how we might survive in a hostile culture. Imagine that your life is a complex set of a million events, sometimes unrelated and often out of your control. This is actually the truth. Imagine if those events were represented by dots on a piece of paper. The mind wants to connect the dots in such a way as to create a story, but it's your mind that makes the story. I want to encourage you to listen to the fact that it is God who's writing the story and not you. The story was never about you. God is not a character in your story. You're a character in God's story. From the very beginning, God has set out to redeem all of creation. We're characters in the grand narrative, the greatest story ever told, the story of God's redemption to be culminated at the return of Jesus and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth. You can connect the same dots and create a despairing life, a life where you're a loser, a life where you're angry, a life where you're a victim, a life where you're full of resentment, or you can take the exact same dots, exact same dots, and you can hear the hope that God has when he writes the story, regardless of what we go through. He writes the best story. This is why the Hebrew writer describes at the end of chapter 13, the end of the letter, that the shepherd of the sheep, that's God, is going to equip us to do whose will? His will. It was his story, not my story. And that not only this, but he's going to work in me so that he can do what pleases him. In order to survive a hostile culture, remind yourself that this story was never about you anyway. You get to be part of God's story, a story that's grander than your story. And so in this story, suffering refines us and makes us pure. In this story, the testing of our faith produces perseverance or strength. In this story, every time we struggle, we're participating in the sufferings of Christ. And so we'll enjoy the glory of Christ as a result. In this story, we experience all the glory that belongs to the story of God, the greatest story ever told. So tell yourself God's story every day. You're in God's story. He's not in yours. Sing songs about it. When a brother or sister has forgotten the song of Jesus, sing it back to them. God is still in charge, my friends, regardless of what it might look like. Good is going to win over evil, and the creation will be born again. And the day will come, most definitely, when those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And the day will come when those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, bringing in the sheaves. Second, in many Muslim nations, there's a social structure called dimitude, wherein the concerns of Muslims, often enshrined in Sharia law, are placed over the concerns of other people, including Christians. For this reason, Christians are often discriminated against in Muslim countries. Some jobs are off limits to Christians. Christians are sometimes forbidden to build church buildings or even repair current church buildings. They face strict laws against saying anything offensive to a Muslim, and they have at various times in history been forced to pay the jizya, that is a special tax 
inflicted upon Christians who live in a Muslim country. Faced with such discrimination and hostility, some Christians in Muslim-dominated cultures have made the sad mistake of internalizing dimitude. That is, they've come to feel as though they're inferior. They've come to have a lower view of themselves. They've come to accept the story of their oppressors. This same tendency could affect us as we face hostility from a secular culture. With our media only telling us a limited and very paganized narrative, we could easily fail to see God's bigger story. Every day, our values are reviled in America by corrupt elites. Frequently now, prominent evangelicals announce that they're abandoning biblical principles or Jesus altogether. And some of our own leaders have compromised themselves through moral failure. The immediate future of Christianity in America is unclear right now. But the future of the Christian faith is not. The truth and beauty of the Christian way of life is going to win. We have an agenda that is worthy of Christ himself. And we must discipline our minds and hearts to stay focused on the real story and never internalize a fake story. I've now made reference several times to the interview I did with my 85-year-old black friend who grew up in the Jim Crow South with all the hostilities and deprivations you would expect and more. One amazing thing he told me after a two-hour conversation is that his parents never complained to him when he was growing up about the way his people were being treated. I was surprised. Why? I asked. And he said, because they did not want me to grow up feeling like I'm a victim. Well, it should be obvious by now, after seven, and we're in the middle of eight sermons on this subject, that I am going to talk to you about our oppressors and some of our problems. But this black brother, this sweet man, is on to something. We're not victims. And we don't respond in fear. And we're not angry. We're the people of God. I'm surprised that everyone I interviewed in persecuted areas for this sermon series, and that's as many as 15 different people, every one of them turned out to be among the happiest people on earth. In fact, they were not very interested in talking about their persecution or their hostile governments, and most seemed uninterested in this sermon series, as though I'm wasting my time. It is because instead they're focused on one thing, bringing a lost world to Jesus. And obsessed with that, they know peace and joy. That's the true story. So don't internalize fake stories. Don't internalize dimitude. Don't come to think of yourself as somehow a victim. Remind ourselves that we stand together. We stand in God's story. God's story is going to win. The secular story in every secular institution in the U.S. will one day lie in the dustbin of history, and the story of God will reign forever. So we stand as God's church. And number three, connect to the worldwide church. To survive a hostile culture, we need to keep one eye on the big picture at all times. An important way to do this is to network with the global church, including the church in hostile areas where I just mentioned. The believers in these areas typically have far more experience at dealing with hostility than we American Christians have. So we can share with them our prayers, 
our songs, our heroes, our strategies, as well, of course, as the Spirit of God and the sacred scriptures. In this world of the internet, it's much easier to do than ever before. Connecting to the worldwide church will encourage us because it reminds us we're not alone. In fact, Connecting to the worldwide church will show us that though the Christian faith is declining in the U.S., it's exploding worldwide. Brother Lawrence, who led the opening prayer of this service, has planted more than 350 churches. His goal, his goal, his goal in the next 10 years, 50,000 churches in a Muslim-dominated area. So though it may feel to us down here in little Murfreesboro, Tennessee, or wherever you are, as though the Christian faith is in its worst days, it's actually never seen better days. Hundreds of millions, half a billion Christians on the continent of Africa alone. And so the Lord is on the march. And to connect with worldwide Christians will give us the thrill and the reassurance that the people of God require. And further, I want to say the Christian merit message is not confined to North America. It's not a Western message. It's not a white man's religion. It's not a black man's religion. It's not an Asian religion. The Christian message is universal, which is why it is exploding around the world. It's healed marriages of the poorest peasants in medieval Europe. It guided scientists and inventors. It instructed the world's most brilliant philosophers. It inspired people from every caste in India. It charmed Constantine the emperor and saved the slave worker in the copper mines of Spain. It's inspired day workers, economists, jailers, and jailmates, people in castles as well as homeless people, artists and loafers, people whose names are in all the history books, as well as people who died without anyone knowing their name. Because the Christian message is the big message. It's God's story. So ours are the heroes of St. Peter and St. Paul. Ours are the Irenaeus and the Athanasius, the Chrysostom and the Jerome, the Benedict and the Anselm, the Assisi and the Aquinas, the Calvin and the Luther. Ours are the Wesleys and the Tolstoys, the Chestertons, the Bonhoeffers, the Lewises, and many, many others. You did not, when you joined the church, join some fledgling movement whose future is in doubt. You instead joined, as a Hebrew writer says, the city of Zion, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It will strengthen our faith when we realize we belong to the church eternal, the church universal, the people of God. A thousand years from now, secularism and its hostile institutions will not even be memories. But the church of Jesus Christ will be sitting on its throne. You and I belong to the church eternal. Don't forget that. And last, trust in the church victorious. Pastor Andrew Brunson led a small church in Izmir, Turkey. When Recep Erdogan, prime minister of Turkey, decided to crack down on Christians several years ago, Brunson 
was arrested and falsely charged with aiding terrorism. He was detained for several years as the U.S. government sought to negotiate his relief, release. Believe it or not, one of the lead negotiators was a brilliant attorney who's a member at North Boulevard, C.C. Heil, who did negotiate his release. Brunson says that during the first year of his captivity, he huddled in the corner, a broken man, the shock of the mistreatment. But by the second year, he had developed a form of trust he could not have developed any other way. We American Christians are going through something of a shock right now that our own institutions appear to be turning against us. Our values are being attacked, and some of our own people are being bullied. But I'm arguing it's time now to get over the shock and to let the trust kick in. That God is strengthening us. God is purifying us. The church has always been an exiled community. We just sometimes didn't know it. Now we know it. And so now we must look away from D.C., NYC, and Hollywood and turn our eyes to Jesus and let him be the author and the perfecter of our faith. In 1948, Richard Vermbrand was imprisoned by the socialist government of Romania for his Christian faith. He had been in prison before. This time he was sentenced to three years of solitary confinement. Sitting in his prison cell, Vermbrand, the Christian, made up his mind that if he ever got out, he would use his experience to help other persecuted Christians around the world. And as a result, when he did get out, he founded Voice of Martyrs, an organization that does, in fact, just that. Before he died, Vermbrand would speak all over the world about Christian persecution. Ever so often, someone would ask him, what are your credentials to speak on this? And Vermbrand would turn around and pull his shirt up and show the scars on his body and say, these are my credentials. What he was suggesting to the world is that the church will be victorious. That's the church we belong to. That's the church that will win the battle against those who might bully us. Jesus' honor is at stake, and he's not going to be dishonored for long. Every regime that has ever lifted its head up against the people of God has started the clock ticking on its own demise. I remind you that in 1989, the socialist government of Verbrand's Romania was toppled. Its general secretary, Nikolai Kaszewski, was executed in the streets. Verbrand's church lives on. Kaszewski's persecuting does not. When Jesus spoke to the churches of Asia Minor in the book of Revelation, he warned them that Rome's clock was ticking, that Jesus was not going to allow a government to persecute the people of God, that the sexual sins Rome had committed, his words, not mine, that the mistreatments they had issued out against all kinds of people, that the arrogance and the pride of Rome had caught up with it, that Rome now would suddenly find itself in plagues and mourning and famine and death, that the torment Rome would receive would match the luxury it had once given itself, that it would suffer the fate of the widow and not that of the queen. Here's how Jesus puts it when speaking not just of Rome, but of any institution that lifts his fist against the King of kings and the Lord of lords, as well as the people of God. Fallen, fallen as Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. In Rome, 
the music of the harpists and the musicians, the pipers, the trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In Rome was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people and all who had been slaughtered on earth. Jesus' message is clear. Raise your fists against the people of God and the clock starts ticking on you. That's because Jesus is invincible. And so his people are victorious. We are those people. We are the church eternal. I'll wrap it up. In that same book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We would say A to Z. I am the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come the Almighty. Several years ago, sociologist George, George Yancey decided to conduct a survey to determine Americans' attitudes towards Christians. He asked questions of nearly 4,000 people about their views of Christians. Many of the respondents were highly educated, progressive, and wealthy people. So Yancey was surprised at the hatred he discovered in the responses to his questions. So surprised, he coined the term Christianophobia, people who hate Christians. Some people literally wrote their opinions in the survey. They came out like this, and I quote, churches and houses of religion should be designated as nuclear test zones. Kill them all and let God sort them out. The only good Christian is a dead Christian. And there was this one, so many Christians, so few lions. By the way, one can only imagine these same inclusive and tolerant people saying any of these things about any other minority in America, but they felt so smug, so proud that they had no problem speaking this way about the people of God. It's a bad omen for America, but for the people of God, it's nothing new. The people of God have faced hostility all the way back to the crucifixion itself. The hostility we face today, it's really just an affirmation that we belong to the people of God. So, brothers and sisters, in the face of hostility, make your resolutions secure. I will stand firm in Jesus, and I will never deny Him. I will obey the Scriptures, and I will never compromise them. I will be holy. And I will never conform to the world. I will make disciples, and I will never betray the gospel. I will rescue sinners, but never approve of sin. I will bless my enemies and never curse them. I will rejoice in my sufferings and never become bitter. And I will hope in Jesus and never put my hope in this world. God will reward your faithfulness. Persecution purges us of contaminants. It strengthens our resolve. It brings great reward. It binds us together. It's Jesus who says this, blessed are those who are persecuted because of rightness, for theirs is the kingdom 
of heaven. And this, truly remarkable, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me or for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So as he reflected on the pain that the church felt when it was blamed for the fall of Rome, our man Augustine sought to put it all into perspective in his magisterial city of God. We follow a persecuted Savior. Why do we think we would escape persecution? Being persecuted is part of a cleansing process. It's part of being countercultural. It's the pain that accompanies the birth of a brand new world. It's the lot of the city of God to face hostility from the city of the world. But when Jesus returns, Augustine argues, it will end. And so I quote Augustine as we wrap it up. He says of these persecutions, quote, in this manner the church proceeds on its pilgrim way through the world in these evil days. Its troubled course began not merely in the time of the bodily presence of Christ and the time of his apostles. It started with Abel himself, the first righteous man slain by an ungodly brother. And the pilgrimage goes on from that time right up to the end of history with the persecutions of the world on one side and on the other side, the comforts of God. Brothers and sisters, the church will never be defeated and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We are the people of God, the church eternal. We are going to win because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Because he is invincible, we are victorious. So, stand firm.